I, uh, I am just amazed. Um, the, the fact that these people who are up here can take their next breath is uh, uh, a sign of the... Gosh, it's hard to do with something in your hand. Um, it's a sign of the grace of God. But at the same time, I don't want to diminish the fact, this, they rock. I mean, if, if you remember, you, those of you who are around 10 years... One of our first worship experiences was me on guitar, someone on harmonica, I kid you not, whose name will not be said, Bart Carey, um, and another guy who, who I love, can't sing, singing, and that was one of our first uh, real tight worship experiences, and obviously the church didn't grow because of that. Not sure exactly why it did grow um, in those days, but man, that's, that's great, and, and incredible theology there too, incredible theology. You look in the mirror, and I do this all the time. I look in the mirror, and I have two reactions. And I, I hope you just hang with me here. Maybe if you don't have these reactions, you're not like me. But I have two reactions. I absolutely love what I see. I mean, I'm kind of a happy-go-lucky type person. That's just who I am. Uh, there's not a whole lot of difference of the way I am kind of crazy on Sunday mornings and the way I am the rest of the week. Those of you who work with me, you just live with me. That's just... I'm the kind of the guy. I'm a kind of dad who will, David can testify to this. I will scream their name, David, and then I'll just say I love you, just to kind of freak him out. I'm that I'm I'm that worst nightmare you have is what is he? What is his emotions all about? I'm that guy. So I'm I kind of look in the mirror and I and I love what I see. I just say ah, it's great to be alive. And then I also look in the mirror and I loathe what I see. And it's almost a simultaneous emotion. It's like oh can't stand myself. I'm still wrestling with the same thing I've been wrestling for for 20-some years. I'm still that same person, and I hate some of the things that are happening in my life, and some of my friends are going through real hard times, and I hate it. And you have both those things hitting you, and you think, am I schizo? And then you, you learn to read the Bible, and you say, you're not schizo. You're just a Christian, because that's what it means. The reason... <laughs> I didn't even think that was funny. And, uh, maybe I'm the only one. Uh, I'm not paranoid, but you're all out to get me. The, the reason why it feels that way, the reason why I'm constantly struggling with love and loathing of myself, the reason why things are not the way they should be, I live in a world that I'm not designed to live here, the reason for that is because of our old buddies, Adam and Eve, and what they did. Everything changed. I wish for two minutes we could all feel what it would have been like to live in the Garden of Eden. Man, they would have rocked. I mean, everything would have been perfect. Everything, every relationship right. Adam would never have to wonder when Eve says something exactly what she meant. Hmm? <laughs> and, and Eve wouldn't have to say anything to Adam nine times to get him to do it or whatever. There wouldn't have been any of that. The relationships would have been right. And something happens, they disobey God, and the disobedience comes into the world, but not only just disobedience, something happens to the world that is fundamentally changed. Galatians 3.17, God is doling out his punishment upon Adam and Eve primarily, and also the serpent, but Adam and Eve. And he says this, he says, to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. It was deliberate, willful disobedience. Because of that, cursed is the ground because of you. 
Through, though, uh, through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. You and I live in a place where the earth is under a curse. And at the same time, God in his mercy, if you remember, what was the punishment? Does anyone remember what was the punishment? If Adam and Eve ate of the tree that they weren't supposed to eat of, what was supposed to be the punishment? Oh, I hear from the uh, bowels there. Tim's yelling as he's walking upstairs. Yes, death. And they do die. But they don't physically die immediately. And there's mercy. If you read chapter 3 of, of Genesis, God makes them clothing because of the first time in their lives they realize that they're naked. He makes them clothing. The fact that there's a Genesis 4 at all is a sign of grace. That God doesn't just destroy them. All right, but the, the idea is here is that there's a graceful thing, but there's this land that's cursed, and you and I live in it now. And in our hearts are the echoes of Eden all the time. I want something that feels just right, and it doesn't feel that way. It feels not quite right. You ever had a moment where everything feels just right? <gasps> Whoa, don't anybody move there. It just felt just right. Just for everything, all, all, all my relationship lined up for a second, and my finances are in order, and everything just feels for this moment good. It's an echo of Eden. You're hearing what it must have been like to be in the Garden of Eden inside you, and that's what you deeply want, and yet we live in a world where it's not like that. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he came to undo the curse. Right? He came to undo the curse. Bible scholars, when does the curse get ended, though? Anybody? Ooh, stump the Bible scholars here. <laughs> it's January. You aren't going to get there till December. Revelation 21. It says, no longer will there be any curse. Another passage in Revelation, he says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Okay, it's not going to happen till then. So in the meantime, Jesus Christ came to die for sin, to pay the penalty for your and my disobedience, to pay for what Adam did, no doubt. And if you're here trusting in Jesus Christ alone, there's a glorious future for you. But you live right now in this tension. You're living right now in a tense area. We're going to talk about this area today, this very thing. What I'm going to talk about is not going to make it any easier. In fact, for some of you, what I'm going to talk about, I want to... I want to warn you, it's going to make it harder. What I'm going to talk about is going to make it harder. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I, uh, I can't help it, though. The passage where we're going to be in, in the Gospel of John is going to lead us there. And I, I just want to warn you, though, it's a difficult passage to swallow. If these truths are true, how does it all fit together? The thing we're going to talk about this week is, I think, one of the most difficult points in all of theology and practically speaking, it's the reason why more people don't become Christians or those who are following Christ punt. Say, I am out of here. This isn't the first and this certainly will not be the last. This late August this year, I, I got an email from a person who used to go to Hope. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Don't ask me. Haven't been around for years. Most of you wouldn't know this person. They're replying back to the email newsletter that we send out about twice a month or so. It says this. It says, Hello, Steve. I hope everything is going well. Could you please remove me from your email list? This may or may not come as sad news, but I can no longer accept that God is faithful, righteous, and just. You can delete this right away, 
but it's a short email and I've known you for a long time. And I do know this person for a long time. We go way back. Show your power, in quotes. Uh, Show your power is the name of a song that we used to sing a lot at Hope. And um, it it has this idea of God showing himself glorious in, in spite of circumstances. Show your power is only a song and demands far more repetition than anything the Levites did, which amounts to nothing of satisfactory consequence. God is the personification of every maximum wish while posturing not as a father, but rather a sublime. Divine patience is not a license to leave the helm. I will not delight in him when he delights in suffering, saved or otherwise. This has nothing to do with things in the world, including bad bad soil, pride, and circumstance. The love for God is always unreturned. It is a futile, it is as futile and ridiculous an action as pissing into the ocean to show it your spite. Now, as best I know, that's where that individual still sits. We're going to talk about that very issue. Life in the big city, when times get difficult, where's God in all this? The answer is not going to necessarily, I think it will comfort you, but it will not necessarily make it easy. All of you are going to sit here as he did many times. Said, that's good, that's good, that's good. But when the rubber meets the road, when the sandpaper meets the wood of your life, is it going to matter? And I'm hoping today that you just listen to what God has to say. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. We're in the second part of the Gospel of John. We called it, uh, Who Are You? Or Who Am I? Who Do You Say That I Am? Meeting Christ through His signs and ministry. This is going to be the last sign that He's going to perform in this section that we're going to get uh, a good look at. I want to make sure I'm speaking correctly. John 12 could be a sign. I guess you could. Last miracle, last big miracle that we're going to see in this section. Um, and we have just left John chapter 10. John chapter 10, uh, Jesus goes on this, this discourse about, I am the good shepherd, you guys are sheep, you follow me. And the idea is here is he's trying to show this metaphor that he is the good shepherd, you are to follow him, he will lay down his life for the sheep, and the reason that it counts is because he himself is God Almighty. It'll, it'll pay the sins of all because he himself is God Almighty. He goes through that in John chapter 10, a a beautiful passage of scripture. At the end of it, the religious people that are listening pick up stones and try to kill him. And they say, why? Jesus says, why are you stoning me? And Jesus, excuse me, the religious leaders say clearly, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So they're calling Jesus a mere man. Jesus was no mere man. He was, in fact, both God and man. He was the God man. He's Jesus Christ. Second person of the Trinity, the Son, came to earth, human, God, both. As a result of that, not only do they try to stone him, they try to seize him. And he escapes from them. He doesn't say how he escapes from them, but somehow he escapes from them. And he, and he moves out. He goes out quite a ways away from Jerusalem. He's now going to have an event that happens that brings him back. And we're going to take a look at that. First of all, though, I'm going to read through the passage uh, 
that we're going to do. I usually don't do this. And I, I was, whenever I train young pastors on this kind of thing, I would say, don't do this. But, but that's them. This is me. Uh, I, I just feels like, well, I got the story twice. But uh, what I'm going to do is I want to read through it once so you get kind of the overall feel of it. And there's some things I'm not going to comment on this week. We're going to take three weeks to look at this account. It's a very famous account of the death of Lazarus. And I, it, it, what we're going to talk about today is not going to make any sense unless I kind of give you a broad picture of the whole thing. We're only going to cover the first part. Excuse me, the first part today. <clears throat> but I have to kind of give you the whole part. So I'm going to read it through once, and it's going to seem like we're going through it twice. I'm going to read through it once, and it's going to seem like we're going through it twice. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Judea is the area, the region of Jerusalem. So he's going back to that area by Bethany. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So they're going to go back to Bethany. Now, I want to just skip and hit three other kind of scenes in the next, uh, let's see, we're skipping, we're going only through verse 16 today, but from verse 17 to 44, there's three kind of important things you got to know. So verse 17, on his arrival, he arrives at Bethany. Uh, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus, he's been there four days. He's dead. Dead. People are dead after four days. This is not a, oops, I thought he was dead, dead. This is a dead, dead. This is a, we're going to find out from the text, he's so dead, they think he smells dead. Dead. Okay? No doubt. Four days. Remember, the, the, the messengers come. That might have been part of the first day. We're not sure. Jesus stays two extra days. He travels. He comes. Somewhere in there, four days. Okay? Verse uh, 32. When Mary, that, uh, the same Mary that he talks about before, when this is skipping ahead a little bit, this is an important thing for you to see. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Okay, so here's Jesus coming. There's a sister who now, whose brother died four days ago, but we sent for you, you know, five days ago. What's the deal? Falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, where were you? Falling at his feet. She says, it's an accusation. What are you doing? We sent for you. 
Why are you not here? Okay? You all see that? Okay. We'll cover this stuff next week too, but okay. When Jesus saw her weeping, so she's at his feet, mourning, sobbing, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. We'll look at this in depth next week, but, but that is not all bummer. There's a, there's a famous statue of Jesus where he is, it's, it's just the Jesus wept statue. And I looked online to try to find some good Jesus wept for this. I'll do a better job next week. I'll find some. The statue looks like this. Now, that ain't what this says. Okay, this says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Literally what that means, I would have given the connotation in the original language, it would have meant he snorted like a horse. What does that mean? That means, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Jesus loses it. He is not, oh, bummer. Sorry about that. <laughs> he has lost it. He says, not crying. This is weeping. This is mourning. This is a Jesus who is, you know, he's, he's, he's sobbing like this and goo is coming up. This is big time. Okay, we'll go into this more. But, and you're probably thinking, I don't want to go anymore. That's enough. But then he says to them, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. And then it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Not Jesus was sorry. Jesus was bummed. Uh-uh. Jesus wept. All right? That's important. To, we're going to come back to that. It's very, very important. You see that. It's not just being a little bit bummed. This is lose it kind of sorrow. We skip ahead to verse 40. Because you need to know this part of the story. And spoiler alert, spoiler alert, if you're kind of waiting, you don't want to know how this ends, just put your fingers in your ears or something. But otherwise, this is not going to make any sense. So verse 40, then Jesus said, he comes to the tomb and he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let them go. Okay? I, you, you just kind of want to give you the overall what happens. Here. Now, let's go take a look at this a little bit more uh, through just through verse 16 and we kind of want to hit on a few things. First thing, there's a request made. First three verses, there's a request. They come to him. This guy is the name of Lazarus. He's from a city named Bethany. Bethany is one and a half miles from Jerusalem. It's a suburb basically of Jerusalem and it's close enough so that those who are trying to kill Jesus, trying to seize him, could find him. It's important to know that because they come and it says the, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. In the Gospel of John, if, if you're with us and you don't know the Bible at all, in some ways I'm glad because you get this first time. You're hearing it first time. And if you're reading through the Gospel of John, you're probably going, who are Mary and Martha? We don't know. Who's Lazarus? Never heard of the guy, right? You've never heard of the guy. It says, they explain it. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Well, that's a great way to describe someone. 
When does Mary pour perfume on Jesus and wipe it with her hair in the Gospel of John? Anybody? John 12. We're in John 11 now. Oh, I see. You're explaining who this is because, what? It's something that's coming up. This Mary would be so well known to the readers of the gospel that he just tells it. He says, this is the Mary. This is this Mary. Oh, that Mary. Oh, okay, we haven't even read about it yet, but okay, that Mary. John just says, this is who this is. Now, these people come, um, and they, they uh, sisters sent word to Jesus, so there's some messenger. The messenger comes, and he says, the message is simply this, spoken in great, Passive-aggressive Minnesotan language. Lord, the one you love is sick. Don't identify the name and don't really ask me anything. Right? Just a statement, right? It's like, it's like your wife saying, uh, my coffee cup's empty. It's like saying, you're right, it is. It's also snowing today. You got any other facts you want me to know or what? Passive-aggressive says, boy... Get your butt out of that chair. Coffee maker's over there. Come here. I want two creams and one sugar, and I want you to be joyful about it. That's what that means, man. If you don't know, I've been trained you in that uh, premarital counseling. That's what it means. Okay? That's that, that's that Minnesota thing where we don't really ask, you know? Like my dad used to say all the time, boy, I think there's a better channel. I think there's something better on channel three. That's the day. We didn't have a remote. I am the remote. I'm the only child in my family. <laughs> Channel three, good. I go do it. Passive aggressive. Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, Jesus knew who that was. Jesus knew who he's talking about. Lazarus. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus love everybody? Sure he does. But there was some significance here of an intimate relationship with Lazarus that was beyond just the love that he has for everybody. There was some intimate relationship there and the the non-aggressive, or excuse me, the passive-aggressive Minnesota way of saying this is, Lord, the one you love is sick. Come and heal him. Look at the answer. The request is given. So they, 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 they go to him. They knew where to find him. In fact, the request is kind of a brazen request because Jesus is in hiding, or at least he's ex- in exclusion from the people of Jerusalem because they're trying to get him. These people come to him and say, Jesus, will you come back? Will you come back right to where you're going to be in trouble to heal Lazarus? It's a, it's a brazen claim. Jesus' answer, verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, if I hear that, and I'm the messenger guy, I come, I give the message. Lazarus, or the one you love is sick. No, don't worry about it. Not going to end in death. God will be glorified through it, and so will I. It's like, God the Father and God the Son will both be glorified in this whole thing. I'm the messenger guy. That whole glorified thing, that's a neat way, but okay, whatever. The not going to die thing. I groove on that. And I go back to them and say, you know what? He ain't going to die. And they look at you and say, you know what? He already died. (laughs) We're putting him in the tomb now. This will not end in death. Now, buckle your theological seatbelts. Here we go. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We already established that fact. Why does John say it again? Mm. 
Verse 6, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Let's go back to Bethany. That region was uh, Judea and there was Bethany and Jerusalem right there. He says, let's go back there. Let's do something about it. But it's after two days. Now, it's interesting because in this particular uh, sign, in this particular healing, Jesus is going to do something way different than he's ever done before. The, the two other major ones we've seen is John 5, the healing at the pool. Uh, I call it a drive-by healing. He just comes by and heals a guy. And then he has this discourse through the rest of chapter 5. He has this big thing about talking about what happened, using it as a metaphor. In John chapter 9, he heals the guy who was born blind. And he goes in this whole long thing about blindness and sight and who can really see, which leads him into the good shepherd thing. That whole chapter 9 and chapter 10. He, so he does this healing, and it's kind of a setup for this, for this message he wants to give. Not so this time. It's just the complete opposite. He's going to give the message for it. We, we have to wait till verse 40 to get to the healing. He's going to give this entire message first. And part of the message is verses 5 and 6, where it says, Jesus loved them. Repeats the idea, loved them. And then the NIV, the New uh, International Version, says, yet, when he waited. Now, I love the NIV. This is my NIV Bible. Uh, I, have, I have used since 1983, somebody handed me an NIV Bible. It was my first Bible I ever read. I love this Bible. I love this translation of the Bible. It is a good translation of the Bible. It really is. That first word in, in, in verse 6 there, that is a bad translation. That is a horrible translation. Let's look at how other versions translate uh, John 11, 5 through 6. New American Standard. says, Now Jesus loved Martha and, and her sister and Lazarus. So, so, whoa, that's way different than yet. I'll show you why in just a second. When he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. One says this, yet says this, and yet is, a, is a, not a good translation. Yet says this, there's love and in opposition to the love, there's something that happens that's very difficult. That is not what this passage says. This passage says, and he, I don't know what else to do with verse 5. Verse 5, he's just stating this thing, making it real clear. He loved him, therefore, or so then, he waits. Now, it does make you scratch your head, no doubt about it. And I'm sure the, uh, the, the interpreters of the New International Version scratched their head and said, doesn't that seem like an opposite thing there? It's, that's why it's so striking. Look at the way that the King Jimmy, those of you who like King Jimmy, says, uh, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus when he heard, when he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. That is why we don't read the King James anymore. <laughs> he abode two days still in the same place where he was. He abode two days still in the same place where he was. I have to get out my scorecard. That just says he stayed there for two days, you know. He abode still there. Herna harna he herna harna. Okay. So then came along the Revised Standard Version, which helped revise the King James, which says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus, so when he, so, 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 so when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the English Standard Version, which a lot of you are trying to convert me to, which it ain't going to happen. 
but you can try. Uh, now, and, and, and just because I have so much memorized, and I do, I like the NIV for the most part, except for this exact moment. But now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And you're probably saying, what is a big deal? I'll, I'll, I'll share that in just a second. I can't stand when preachers stand up and quote the Greek. Drives me crazy. Because there's, there's ambiguity to the Greek language at times that's as often as ambiguous as English. However, I studied this stuff for three years, and I'm going to quote one anyway. The, the, word there, the word there is hos, go to the next one. Yeah, I know. Hos, un. Those two together, those two words together, un, 99% of the time, is one of the strongest words in the Greek language for therefore. Something happens, therefore. Us gives it kind of a, when you heard this idea. So when I had heard this, therefore I did that. Or when this happens, therefore. Now, if you don't believe me, believe a guy by the name of D.A. Carson. Let me just read this. Uh, and, and you'll understand what's at stake here. Because it's huge what's at stake. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Gospel According to John, says, What Jesus has just said could be interpreted as callousness towards the Bethany family. Uh, Lazarus, Math, uh, Martha, and Mary. John will not have of it. He insists that, to quote it, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John's point is that the glorification described in the previous verse is not harsh and thoughtless because it is devoid of affection for others, but entirely in keeping with Jesus' love for this family. Lazarus' death and resurrection that follows are not only to glorify the Father and His Son, but are for the good of Lazarus and his sisters. It's huge. Huge difference between that and yet. God loves you, yet he allows hard things to happen. God loves you, so he allows hard things to happen. Come to you. It's two different meanings completely. The NIV's rendering of the opening of verse 6 is without linguistic defense. That's, that's a scholar's way of saying, what are you doing, homie? Okay, sorry. Um, Yet when he heard, the translators have set the affirmation of uh, the love of Jesus in verse 5 in dramatic tension with the two-day delay reported in verse 6. The obvious contribution of the particles hosts on, however, suggests a rendering such as this. When, therefore, he had heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. This means... That the two-day delay was motivated by Jesus' love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. John 11, 5, and 6 have radical different meanings if you look at that one word. And I, this whole sermon is really about one word. I'm sorry. It's, it's that verse 6, the first word, and it's not even in the NIV. So I had to take some time because I know we're going through the NIV. The idea is that the love of Jesus Christ motivates him letting him die. Now, you should be scratching your head right now. I'm going to make it so, so, so much worse here right now. Here we go. Follow the course of events in this account. The first thing, the messengers are sent to Jesus. He says to them that this won't end in death and that he deeply loves them. 
You got it? First thing. That love then leads to the second thing. Him not going. Alright, so if you have a hard time with the word cause, that Jesus caused the death of Lazarus, fine. He allowed it. I, I, quite honestly, I don't. when you're God Almighty, I don't know what the difference between cause and allow is, but fine. However you want to, however it fits back in, best in your theological pipe. So you, you got, or Jesus Christ is told his request. He deeply loves them and it motivates him, it moves him to not go. Lazarus dies. Good and dead dies. Third thing. Let me go to the fourth thing. <laughs> I'll come back to the third thing. Fourth thing. He's going to raise Lazarus. And Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus. How do I know that? Because he said it's not going to result in death. He's not lying. He's just tricksy in the way he's saying it, okay? Because they're going, wait a minute. And when you trick people, by the way, they're better learners. Really, seriously. I used to, I used to do science projects with kids, and we used to have them fill up hydrogen balloons and, and you know, from uh, the uh, electrolysis of water, and when you light that sucker on, I'd say, oh, okay, wait, turn off the lights. Everybody get close, because this is going to be just a little, little tiny flash, and I just want you to, <laughs> boom, you know. Oh, Mr. Trichler's great, man. He blows up stuff, you know. When you, when you shock people, they learn better, so. <laughs> or maybe it's just fun. I don't know, but. Okay, so he shocks them by that statement, and he heals Lazarus, and he knows he's going to heal Lazarus. You got that? Put that all in your pipe. Hang on with it now. He loves them. They give a request. He uh, tells them it won't end in death, and he doesn't go, causing the death of Lazarus. He knows full well he's going to heal him. He's going to raise him from the dead, but when he gets there, what does he do? He snorts like a horse. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Here's a God who's in complete control and he loves unconditionally. His love moves him to do things that cause suffering. It causes a suffering. You can't say that these, these people mourning wouldn't have been mourning if Jesus would have just come. He doesn't say he had anything important to do for those two days. It's motivated by his love. He goes, and when he gets there, knowing full well in a matter of minutes he's going to walk to the tomb and raise them, when he sees these people mourning and the pain it's caused, he's seen the pain that's caused in Lazarus, he doesn't just go, oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, it's bad. He loses it. Now, why does that matter? I think it makes all the difference in the world. Did you read my friend's email? First of all, he's not letting go of the helm. He's holding on to the helm very carefully, thank you. But in the midst of it, in the midst of your trouble, trouble and, and struggle, knowing that good is going to come out of it, knowing that, knowing he's excited about seeing how you're going to respond when you get to see Christmas morning of, of the great package that he has for you, whatever it is, knowing that while you're in the midst of it, he mourns with you. Now, I don't know about you, but that deeply ministers to me. I was talking to someone after first service is going through a hard thing, and they were crying. And I said, I think the more you understand this, the deeper you can hurt, because you know God Almighty is there with you. It doesn't make it any easier. In fact, I think it makes it harder because God's the one who led you down this path, though he lead me through the shadow of the valley of death. He's the one who brought you there. I'm not going to make it easier. In fact... I think it's harder to be a Christian. This isn't just 
blank happens now. This is God allowing blank to happen. And that's how you're loved. Go to the next one. That's how you are loved through sovereign suffering. He takes you through it. He takes you through it. Okay, well, let's just finish out real quickly what happens. When, when Jesus says, now let's go, his disciples have some resistance. They say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Their concern's a little bit for Jesus' neck and their neck than Lazarus, okay? Uh, and yet you want to go back there? Jesus said, I, 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 just picture these guys. These are fishermen, okay? These are fishermen. You want to go there, they tried to stone you. And Jesus says this, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Can you see these fishermen when he says that? They're like, huh? I'm talking about stoning and clubs and mobs and lynching. And you're talking about light and stumbling and darkness. And, and it just, What? And this is great because it's an odd-numbered verse. Jesus answers it. Here we go. Verse 11. He says, After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And of course the disciples say, Lord, Lord, it's good if he sleeps. Okay, so you got the light thing going on. Didn't quite catch that. The sleep thing. I'm closer, but I'm not quite there. So Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Talking toes up. Pushing daisies here. Got it, guys? Dead. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, so you may believe. But let's go to him. Now, last verse. Timmy, or Tommy. Often in the Bible, or uh, the nickname we've gave this guy is what? Thomas what? Blank Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Hey, 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 hey. This guy had guts of steel. Don't, don't. He, he might have been doubting, but he ain't no pansy. All right? Because what does he say? It, it, it's very hazardous to your health to go back to Jerusalem now. In fact, when Jesus goes back, in the end of chapter 11, he's going to leave. He's going to go to a region that's really close. He's never going to really leave the region of Jerusalem again alive until after his resurrection. And the disciples know this. This was not good the last time. It's going to be worse this time. Let us go that we may die with him. Thomas went to go and die. So cut, some, cut Thomas some slack. Yes, he did doubt, but hey, he's the only one. The rest of the disciples are like, ah, not if he keeps talking about the light thing. Uh, okay, we'll go. <clears throat> now, how do we apply this? How do you apply all of that? For, uh, just a couple questions. First of all, number one, do you ask Jesus for help? That's what they did. At a great cost to Jesus Christ, they asked him for help. Do you ask him for help? You see, when, when, when things look really bad, is that your first thing? To cry out to, to Christ and say, Christ, I need you to help me in this. And it's a good thing. I would guess that most of you do. I would guess some of you who aren't even yet followers of Jesus Christ cry out to God in the midst of everything. It's a natural thing to do. So question one is, do you, do you, do you ask Jesus for help? But question two is, are you willing to accept the answer when it comes? And how it comes. 
A lot of you, I, I pray with a lot of you, I read the cards, you ask for a heart for God. Sometimes that's brought on by difficult circumstances. Some of you, and I prayed for you right down here where I pray on, on uh, uh, communion Sundays, ask for humility. Hmm, that is, those of you who speak Spanish, an el dangero eso, el prero. <laughs> You're going to ask for humility? Woo-wee. Bible talks about humility. How to get it. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel asked. He, he wasn't humble and God put him through a humility program. And that was basically going insane, walking around like a cow, eating grass, and mooing and shouting at the... I don't know if that's going to happen, but oftentimes you want to get to know Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. So, that's what you pray for. God, I want to know you. Okay, I'm going to answer that prayer. Are you willing to accept the answer to that prayer? Dr. Larry Crabb wrote a book. Uh, he says, moving through your problems toward, and the book is called Finding God. I love this book. It's a great book. It came out a few years ago. Dr. Larry Crabb, one of my heroes, actually. I love this guy. And uh, he wrote this book after the worst tragedy in his life. His brother was on an airplane uh, a few miles from Larry Crabb's house in Colorado Springs on a, on a smaller plane, you know, one of those commercial planes, but they're smaller, and it crashed and killed uh, his brother, Bill. And he writes this book. He opens the first chapter discussing that uh, uh, situation. But you know what? The, I think the book is profound to me, but you know on the page where they dedicate the book to someone else? That's probably impacted me as much as the book. And he... he gives this dedication to a man and it says to the memory of Dr. Charles Smith, a mentor who prayed for his cancer to return if it would bring him closer to God. In his last year he found God in a measure he had never known before. And then he died of cancer. I don't know that guy. I don't, I don't know anything about that mentor. But there's a guy who understood how much the love of God can come to you in ways and through things that aren't the way maybe you'd write the story. I want to close this morning by, I've spent all last week with the, the, uh, the interns, our seven interns here at Hope, and two other people, and, and Norma and I uh, spent all last week going through the first half of the book of Romans, the first eight chapters. Went through it chunk by chunk, discussed it all. What a wonderful way to spend a week in. And also just exhausting. I mean, it's by the end of it, you're just you're fried, but you're just you're filled and fried. We like to say a, uh, like a like a Romans burrito, I guess we called it. But the the um, I want to read this because the end, the way Paul ends chapter eight of the book of Romans is exactly what we're talking about. I'm going to close with this Romans eight, the end of the chapter. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay 
and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, we come to you now with that hope. That is our only hope. As we think about our experiences and our faith, oftentimes many of us, and perhaps right now very profoundly, some of us in this room may feel like Lazarus in his two days in that tomb. The two days when Jesus was waiting God, I pray that when we're in those moments, we would know it's because, it's because, it's because Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary and us that it motivates him to take us through the valley of the shadow of death at times. God, I pray for people in this room who are struggling right now with this, who maybe are very close to writing an email like this to someone saying it's just it's futile to follow God. God, right now, would you show yourself, show your love. Let them know that hope is around the corner and that it is true and that it's real hope. And this sickness will not end in death. God, I feel very feeble in trying to explain and even trying to grasp myself this beautiful doctrine of suffering and love and sovereignty. And God, I pray by your spirit, it would resonate in our souls and it would cause us to be people who can go through suffering knowing that at that very moment, Jesus Christ is actively waiting.
lovingly paused before you work. Lord, just like the psalmist at times when many of us are going through a period where we're just asking, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you wait? Lord, until you're done, until you've conformed us, and so every, whatever you want to be accomplished to be done, so you get glory and we get uh, conformed. So Jesus, I just pray for people in this room right now who are going through that, that you would show them that you are in complete control and that you are fully loving on them and while they're going through it and while you're waiting, that you're mourning with them. I pray all these things in Christ's name.